0: I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. Sitting in with Leanne and I today is one of our executive producers, Kim Garner. So let's begin. Anat Barron is a serial entrepreneur, brand builder, keynote speaker, and filmmaker. She's an innovative leader who's worked with well-known hotel brands, including Four Seasons, Holiday Inn, and Radisson. She's also worked as a Hollywood producer and executive, a management consultant, and a travel expert. While at the helm of Mike's Hard Lemonade, Barron helped grow the company into a $200 million juggernaut within three years. After leaving the company, Barron wrote, produced, and directed Beer Wars, a feature-length documentary which explores the David and Goliath story of the $100 billion U.S. beer industry. She is currently the founder and CEO of Stashwall, Inc., an early-stage technology startup. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with a not Barron. Where did you grow up? So my dad worked for an airline when I was a kid.
1: And so until the age of two, I lived in Israel. When I was two, we moved to Tehran, Iran, where I lived for five years and then moved back to Israel and then to Montreal. So I kind of lived the, my formative years from six to 12 in three different countries with three different major religions.
0: Were wow. your parents Israeli? My parents are Israeli. Israel- yes. Are Yes. So you started there, went to Tehran at a time where it was Glamorous. a cosmopolitan place. I would imagine that it was probably like that when you lived there. So I was a kid, but it was the 60s. And um, Israel and Iran, what most people don't know,
1: were very close at the time. And, and there were daily flights from Tel Aviv to Tehran until the Shah fell. I think at the time, yeah, it was it was an amazing place to grow up. I went to the international kindergarten with kids from probably 50 different countries. You know, there was the culture, there was an expat community. So it was an amazing way to kind of see a completely different culture and to be an outsider, which I have been probably my entire life. So I think what I learned from all of these experiences is that you don't always have to fit in, but that our human nature tries to get us to fit in.
0: Are you an only child? I have a sister, a younger sister. Was she, so she bopped around with you two? Were you too
1: close? Um, we were close. We are not close at the moment. Yeah. When did your
0: dad pass? 1990. So he was a relatively young man. Yes, he was very young.
1: Did you feel
2: welcome when you were living in Tehran by being a different religion? Or you were too young to you even remember You were too
1: young. That? You were little. Not only was I too young, I mean, my parents' friends were, you know, I think what happens in those communities is that my parents' friends were mostly Israelis because there was a big... Israeli community. Mm -hmm. And so those were the people who came to the house. Um, We had, quote, help in the house. So I I felt, I mean, I think the funniest story that I remember is that we we had two types of toilets in the house. We had the regular Western toilet. And then there was a toilet in our nanny's room, which was basically a hole in the floor with porcelain around it. And uh, we didn't know what it was or how to use it or what it was for. So one day we – my sister and I – so this is where well, I think my sister hates me because of this. So my sister and I snuck into the her room and just waited for her to have to go to the bathroom. And then we saw what was going on and there was a hose there and we didn't know what the hose was for. And we started laughing and she fell in. So Your that, sister fell no, in? No, the, the, the nanny fell in. And so we got into a lot of trouble for that. But that was kind of the, the only cultural – you th- the only person that we were connected to, other than like the people at the grocery store, were
0: the people who worked in our house. Like we really didn't have a lot of exposure to the locals. So you went back to Israel. Yes. And then stayed there until you moved to Montreal. Until we moved to Are Montreal. Are you multilingual? I
1: am. I can barely speak English, so don't test me on <laughs> other languages. But yes, I, I, I spoke fluent when I was six. I spoke four languages. I spoke fluent Persian, Hebrew, French, and English. When did you move to Montreal? When I was 10, and that is probably the worst time to move as a child. It was horrible. We moved in the middle of winter. I had seen snow in Tehran, but never this much snow. The snow would be pretty much over my sister and my head at the time. So we're in fifth grade in the middle of a school year. So anybody who has children should never, ever move their kids between probably the ages of 10 and 12, because kids are really tough. So my dad got transferred. He worked for El Al, the Israeli airline, and he opened up the station in Montreal. And so I grew up with a lot of pilots. I mean, there's the story will continue because I did end up in the travel space, mostly because I grew up around airplanes and hotels. When you
0: went to Montreal, did you go to a French-speaking school?
1: No. So my parents um, enrolled my sister and I in a private Jewish school, and I became part of um, what was known at the time as the Jewish-American princess or a Jap, for those um, who know that right.
0: expression. Technically, you were a JCP because you were in Canada. JCP. So well, a it was Jewish actually Canadian we were still Japs,
1: yeah. It was still, still there, there were, yeah. It was still Japs. <laughs> it was kind of America as like the whole continent, yeah. And it was really hard because the kids were all from there. We looked a little different, even though I spoke the language. So there were three. I, I don't even know if people do that anymore, but they they took you, did, you took IQ tests and they basically put you in. So I was put into the high grade, and so everybody was like total total snobs. Hated it was. You. Smart, hey,
0: pretty, comes from a foreign country. It was a- horrible. Every reason they could possibly find a hey And here.
1: outsider. I would say, Ryan again, an you know, it's a, it's a Jewish school, but they had never met anyone from Israel. And even though I wasn't just from Israel, they just didn't know what to do with me. Also, big personality. And so it was really difficult. I hated pretty much my entire life in Montreal from 10 to 17. And then what happened at seventeen? What I ran. A, like, I, I literally could not wait to get away, so I applied to all kinds of colleges because I had to get out of there. And I got a scholarship to Tel Aviv University in Israel, and so I left and went to Israel. Unfortunately, my parents decided to follow me.
2: <laughs> really?
1: Yeah. You so they we were getting Did away. your sister
2: and what happened to with your sister? With my sister,
1: she's oh. younger. And so my, the entire family moved to Israel. They built this penthouse apartment which was lovely. I lived in the dorms, shared a room with someone else and like showers with God knows how many other women. And I refused to move like my parents built me this beautiful even like a private entrance and I refused to move there because I wanted to be independent and it was just time for me to make it on my own. I lasted two years. Because I was born in Israel, I had to go into the army. But because I came in from out of the country, and I didn't spend my entire life there, they gave me a deferral. But I still had to register with the army. So once again, they make you take these IQ tests. And I had this vision that I was going to be a Mossad agent. I just thought I would make a great spy. That's so funny. Right? Because I speak all (laughs) these languages. And I like to travel. And it just seemed like it was just such a good use of my skill. And so you you do these tests. And then, you know, I talked to some guy and I never got my dog tags. So basically, it's a deferred acceptance into the army until I graduated from um, university. And I said, okay, so how did I do? And they're like, you did great. I said, okay, so I want to be like a spy. And obviously, (laughs) that's not part of the army that comes later, but I wanted to somehow do something while I was in the army to get me ready for that. And he said something that I I guess. Changed my life, which is you're a girl, and because you're a girl, you're going to do what we want you to do. And so, pretty much, girls are good secretaries. And so, you'll probably be a secretary. And I said, Thank you so much. And I went home and planned my escape, which I did. I don't even know the legality, so I won't bore you with the entire story. But all I will say is that I left Israel and uh, had a two-way ticket, but never came back. Have you been back since? I had to get a pardon from the prime minister.
2: And how old are you at this at this point?
1: I was 19 when I left. So I was there for two years and then I left and then um, went to New York because I had a cousin there and I didn't have any money. And so I was like, OK, where can I go to school for free pretty much? So I looked on a map of Canada because I was Canadian and I saw Vancouver. So I moved, decided to move to Vancouver. I had never been to Vancouver before. It was now the middle of the school year. There were two universities in Vancouver. One was a good and one I'd never heard of before. And so I somehow convinced the people at the University of British Columbia to let me in in the middle of a school year, even though they don't work on a semester system. I had to translate my own transcripts because nobody there spoke Hebrew. So it was Boy, very You were enterprising. And you're all yes. yes. 19. You're all 19. I was 19. 19. Yeah, I was 19. And so I didn't know anybody in Vancouver but my parents knew someone who knew someone. And so they introduced me to someone who knew like someone my age. And so I had like one friend at the very beginning. And uh, I moved into the dorms at the University of British Columbia or UBC and hated the the weather. Like I did not. I was stupid because (laughs) I thought it was on the West Coast. It would be warmer, but it rained rained. every single day. But my parents followed me to Vancouver. (laughs) What? They followed me to Vancouver. They bought another house. I refused to move in there. I lived in the dorms. There's must be something wrong with me, too, because it would have been so great to have like my mom's cooking and the washing and all of that. But there was something about being independent. And then I started working. I had actually started working even in Israel. So I've always
0: had pretty much a full time job while I was at school. Um, so your poor sister was dragged along during all these moves, too, right? Now, you know, why we're now, not we have resen- now we're getting clear on the resentment issue.
2: Is she um, bold in her convictions as you are?
1: Yes, in a different way. I don't know where my I don't even know if it's confidence or stupidity, but somewhere deep in my gut, I've always been sure I am extremely decisive. And I just know and it's not like a gut feel. It's just I speak my mind. I know what I want. Always like I'm not the person who goes to a restaurant and spends two hours reading the menu. So now you're finished school. So I graduated from UBC, and I had already been working in the hotel business. And so I knew from the time I was a kid that I was going to go to graduate school. With my parents, it wasn't like, where are you going to go to college? It was just always assumed that my sister and I would continue our education. We were brought up that education is the most important thing. And so I was trying to figure out where to go to graduate school. And so I was either going to go to law and business at Harvard or I found out that there was a hotel school at Cornell um, and I could go to to the Cornell Hotel School, which at the time, and it still is the the best hotel school in the world, and the business school. So I applied to the hotel school, but I was too young. So I got a conditional acceptance. And they said, if you work for a year, we'll take you, but you're just too young, like we don't have anybody who's 21 in our graduate school. So I had already been working at the Four Seasons Hotel in Vancouver as a front desk clerk. So I transferred to the hotel in Montreal and worked there for a year. I also did a management training program. And of course, told everyone that I was going to Cornell. So everybody like hated me.
2: Why did you go back to Montreal when you had such a terrible experience in your mind from being there when you were a kid?
1: I went back to Montreal because I... I think I wanted to prove that I was now a grown up. I was 21, okay? But I wanted to prove that. I I could make it. It was closer to Ithaca, where I was going to go to graduate school. I think I had a lot to prove to myself. And while I was there, of course, I reconnected with some other kids that I went to school with, including a boy that I had a crush on when I was in school. And so it was kind of a coming home. And I should also note that I came back as a front desk clerk. But within a few months, the night manager quit. And so at the age of 21, I became the night manager of the Four Seasons Hotel in Montreal, which meant that pretty much after everyone left at 11. 7 p.m. until 7 a.m. I was in charge of the hotel. So anytime somebody came in in the middle of the night with a knife or a gun or we had we once had the president of Gabon and Elton John in the lobby at 3 a.m. because we had a fire alarm. I mean, all of that stuff. That was me. And it was a pretty amazing experience. Yeah.
3: What are some of the more kind of unusual? Uh...
1: Well, you, we had every rock star. So what people don't realize is when celebrities travel, especially back then, there weren't that many luxury hotels. So there, there was the Ritz in Montreal and there was the Four Seasons. I mean, the same thing in the four seasons in vancouver like wayne gretzky for example who was already a big hockey player at the time you know they don't travel under their own names there's a lot of secrecy and then there was no paparazzi back then but there was certainly people following and trying to figure out where these guys were staying stalkers Yes, stalkers, fans, whatever you yeah, want to call so, them, so women, in women, the hookers, um, all of that. <laughs> we had everything from suicides to business dignitaries to people making deals, but they didn't want anybody to know that. Like, so I could figure out that two CEOs were in town and they were about to merge. Um, there was no insider trading going on on my end. There were a lot of celebrities, too, that came that didn't want anybody to know. There were a lot of nooners. I learned about the term called day rooms. There's actually an app now that's trying to do something with day rooms, but a lot of day rooms. Is that code for something? What's a nooner? A nooner is someone who wants to come in just for a couple of hours. We did not do that. But day rooms are somebody wants to come in and rent the room just for the day and not sleep over. And so I learned an important lesson. It was actually at the Four Seasons in Vancouver where, you know, if somebody left something behind in their room, we would mail it back to them because we thought that was great customer service. Until one day, Mrs. Smith came in and she had a pair of underwear that she was holding and she said, hi. These are not mine. And we said, well, who are you? And she said, I'm Mrs. Smith. And this got mailed to my house. But these are not mine. At which point we immediately stopped sending people whatever they left in their rooms (laughs) and waited for them to call us because that was not a good thing. But those actually came from the day rooms usually. So at that time at 21, as as a woman taking on all of
2: this responsibility, what was that feeling of being a little vulnerable in all of that?
1: I think that I was so unhappy as a kid, but I had such a strong sense of what I wanted to accomplish and how I didn't actually really want to be a kid anymore because I just wanted to get on with it because I knew that I could be independent and forge my own way, that I just did it. And I don't think that I was nice, maybe. I was just like very matter of fact about it all. And I I just really wanted to, as I have in my entire life, I'm just really interested in absorbing as much as I can because I feel like not, not so much that I'm running out of time, but there's so many things that I want to do that I just want to get on with it so it was like I wanted to learn how to be a manager and manage people and I wanted to learn how to make people happy in the hotel but I also wanted to learn about the money part of it and how things worked because I knew that I was going into what I thought was going to be this incredible intellectual experience at the hotel and business school and so I just wanted to have as much life experience as possible I think that's like my whole life I'm just trying to get it suck as much out of it as possible And the next part of the story is actually even more interesting. So what I did was I was at the hotel observing. I worked at the hotel for the year, and then I knew I was going to Cornell in the fall. And in the summer, in between, there was a hotel strike, and the union went on strike. And at the time, unions were very big in hotels, especially in Canada. I was still 21, but I was management. And so what do you do in a hotel when your entire staff, your housekeepers, all of your hourly workers are gone? They brought in the corporate staff from head office in Toronto. And there we were. So I literally got to, for weeks on end, get to know all the VPs, all the hot shots from head office. Uh, and we were all like literally making the beds, things I hate to do, like housekeeping, answering the phone. I mean, we literally had to take everything over. And then the strike ended and I was about to go to school. And I decided at the last minute to connect with the executive vice president of Four Seasons in Toronto. By then, my parents thank God, decided to follow my sister to Toronto. (laughs) So they stopped following me. They did not follow me to Montreal. Uh, My sister was going to York University in Toronto, and they moved to Toronto. So my parents were living in Toronto. I was going to go visit them. And so I went to see Michael Lambert, the EVP, the number two guy at Four Seasons. And I started bitching and moaning to him about – I was like, these are the problems. Like, I've worked at two of your hotels and I'm going to Cornell and just before I leave, I think I need this exit interview. And I just gave him the litany of all of the problems, you know, that I had seen because I was so smart. And he looked at me and said, do you just want to complain or do you want to fix things? And I said, well, if I could fix things, like, of course I have (laughs) ideas. And so um, I did something that, once again, I'm not sure was perfectly kosher. However, I actually worked for Four Seasons while I was a graduate student at Cornell. And I had the craziest life because every weekend, pretty much, I got on a plane at the Ithaca airport and went to one of the Four Seasons hotels or to head office in Toronto. It was fantastic. So I was 22. And for my entire time at graduate school, I worked at Four Seasons. They paid me a monthly stipend. So it was great. In the summer, in between, my two years of graduate school, I actually wrote the first strategic plan for Four Seasons Hotels. Because of course, I was like, sure, I know everything. Of course you're going to. Yeah. And they had never really looked at the company as this amalgamation of all these different hotels. It was just these independent business units, which I think a lot of companies that have multiple locations, they look at each business unit separately, but they don't actually try to put it together. And and it's not that they didn't have a brand. They did. And they had standards and all of that. But I looked mostly at people because because what I saw at the company while I was there was they really never thought about growth. And when you think about growth, it's not just location, location, location. You need to grow people in order to move them so that you need like assistant general managers. So then they can become general managers if you want to continue to expand. So I did a human resource plan and went to all the hotels and I had the most amazing summer, pretty much like a rock star, going from city to city, staying in the presidential suite of every four seasons and trying to figure out who is movable and meeting with the general managers. And that was that was really interesting and taught me a lot So you went to work with Four Seasons after graduate school? I did not. So I was about to graduate and I went to meet with the president of Four Seasons at the time, John Sharp. And he said, look, you know what? You know too much and you're young and you need to go work for someone really big. So I think you should go find the biggest hotel company. I'll give you a great reference. Go find the biggest hotel company you can find. And the biggest hotel company in the world was a company called Holiday Inn Hotels. They're a franchise company. So their largest franchise was based in Toronto. So I went to meet with them and they created a job for me at 24. And so they gave me the operations of 75 hotels in six different countries. That was my first job out of school. It was a company called at the time it was called Commonwealth Holiday Inn. But then I changed the name to Commonwealth Hospitality because I really didn't like working for Holiday Inn, um, having come from Four Seasons. And so we actually rebranded the company while I was there. It was also an interesting time. It was the 80s, And early 90s. So, also being a young woman, when I started, there were no female general managers out of the 75 hotels. By the time I left, three and a half years later, there was one. And all of the general managers' meetings were male dominated. As a matter of fact, the first one I went to, so I should also mention I'm allergic to alcohol. So this is a very strange industry for me to be in. But no one believed me that I was allergic to alcohol. They just thought that I wanted to keep my wits around me. So every time I would go to one of these conventions, somebody would slip something into my drink and then I would have to go to the hospital. And then, you know, the word around the company was that I got drunk and had to be taken to the hospital. And it was a very sexist environment. Like I would say maybe like a third of the general managers made passes at me. Like there were like ridiculous, ridiculous stories like it was. But at the same time, I was very confident in who I was. And so I just kind of brushed it off and moved on. And it wasn't that it didn't affect me, but it was like, whatever, like moving on. Um, Did you
2: have any time for fun or you were just you were in working hard mode.
1: There was a little playtime. I think I've always been more interested in like the business side of my life than anything else. I like to have fun. I like to laugh. So there was some of that. But I think when you're trying to grab as much, especially when I was young, like I just knew that the sooner I got all this experience and the sooner I got really good at it and the more people I managed and the more experience I had under my belt, the more I could accomplish. And so yeah, I and I think that for me too, like a lot of this I don't know if you call it fun, but it's definitely satisfying because Mm -hmm. it's cool. Like, I mean, who gets to do that kind of stuff or to stand up? I mean, I made my first big speech when I was 25 to like everyone in the company. There were hundreds and hundreds of people and, you know, it was my conference and I brought everyone together and it's an amazing feeling, not so much because of the adulation, but because I learned that pretty much, if you want something, you can do it. You just have to work at it. Like, it's it's not easy, and you do always have to sacrifice something. What do you think
3: the sacrifice was in those early days for you?
1: Well, I think the sacrifice is just, there's only so much time, right? So it's like, what do you devote your time to? So I had boyfriends. All of them were assholes. But I was never the girl who envisioned herself in the white dress and wanted to get married and had kids. Not because I couldn't, because let's just be clear, I've had offers. But more importantly, just because it was never, I don't know, I don't know why it was never that important to me. My sister, on the other hand, got married, had like, she's been divorced twice. She went down that road, she wore the dress. So the sacrifice while I was there, did I have less of a social life? Yeah. But I also like, I don't know, I made a lot of friends through work. I traveled a lot. I would add on trips. Um, I had a lot of frequent flyer points. I mean, there were a lot of positives. And I just took that fun where I could have it. And I I was dating, like I met lots of different types of guys on airplanes.
3: (laughs) The, the thing that I appreciated about you when I first met you is how game you are and how curious you are. So was that very much satisfied by the peripatetic travel
1: and meeting new people? I hate boredom. This is why I never got married. No offense to all of you who are married, but I never got married because I just get really bored. Okay. So when you're really young and you travel with your parents, especially back in the day when nobody was traveling, you go to hotels and you see those couples. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? The couples who are sitting at dinner and now they're looking at their phones. Back then they were reading the newspaper and they have nothing to say to each other. And I just never wanted that. When I've had boyfriends and like you get together and you live together, which I never have. It's just like, I'm not really that interested in what you did today. You know, I love my mom, but like when I call, you know, when we're on FaceTime and I'm like, so what's new mom? And she's like, well, first I did, I'm like rolling my eyes. So I just don't like to be bored. And I think that's what drives me. I think I just always want to learn something new, do something new, meet someone new. Like, I'll talk to anybody.
3: You don't like to be bored. So your roles were very much outside consulting roles, even when you were inside, because you were always trying to sort of be critical. You've done a lot of different things, and that fits with that not liking to be bored. How did Mike's Hard Lemonade happen?
1: So I was a Hollywood producer, and then um,
3: I saw... Do you want to talk about that a little yeah, bit? We, hit, sure. we skipped from yeah. four yeah. seasons I didn't, to Hollywood. I realized that happened
1: before Mike's. What's the transition from hotels to Hollywood? After three and a half years, pretty much running this hotel company, I mean, I did have a boss who was the president, but, you know, I was very involved, let's just say, in the day-to-day minutiae of the business. And there was just a point where he came to me one day and said, okay, so the next thing for you is really my job and I'm not leaving. He said, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. Why don't you become a consultant? I'll be your first client. I'll pay you what I'm paying you. And you can also take your car, your company car. And uh, I think you can help lots of other companies. So I left. They became my first client. And then my mom knew a guy who was starting a business. And so they became another client. And I realized early on that at some point in my life, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And, you know, I have this concept of king or kingmaker about do you want to be the person behind the scenes or do you want to be the king? And I guess you can tell which one I want to be. But I didn't know anything about being an entrepreneur. My dad had a after he left LL, he had a travel agency for a while, but I really didn't spend. And a lot of time. Like, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs are motivated by their parents. They see them, whether they have a grocery store, whatever whatever business that they have. And so um, I let people know that I wanted, that I was a consultant now, I was 27, and that I wanted to work with small businesses. And so I auditioned people to have me consult for them. And so I found four different companies that I worked with.
2: You intuitively feel like how to drive a business forward if you're interested in that business. but the ones you're not, you're absolutely not interested in, But you get excited about certain ones, and that whole vision that you can move forward. Who are the first four?
1: So the first company was called. Um, we actually named it Circlet Foods, and and there was a product that's still on the market called Baboli. You see it in the grocery stores. It's a pizza crust. Oh yeah. And so there were these two guys in Toronto who wanted to create their version of it. And so I worked with them until they exited. We actually sold the company for a lot of money. So I helped build a company. But to Kim's point, I think what's interesting about how you look at opportunities, I look at it and and I don't think, do I think they can make it? I think, can I add value? Like, that's a huge thing for me is in any sort of relationship, can I add value? Because if I can't add value, I mean, I don't want to get paid because, again, I'd be bored to just listen to someone talk or if I can't help them. So that's why I was, it wasn't so much from like, oh, let me see if you're good enough for me. It was more, can I help you figure things out? And and what I'm really good at, I think is asking the right questions, which I think a lot of people don't do. They just jump in. And I'm always asking questions first. Like if you come to me with anything, I'm gonna ask you questions. So every time I've worked with any of these entities, they offer me a piece of the company if I were to come on board. And to me coming on board means losing my independence and not being able to do the other things I want to do. I am the stupidest person in the world in that I have never been driven by money. I have only been driven by curiosity and the ability to achieve. And I'm also really stupid because anytime I've gotten really good at something, I leave to go do something else. It's like the exact opposite of everything they teach you in school and everything intuitive that you should learn in life.
0: And if you could have done it over again, would you have done it differently? No. Well, then it was the right path. <laughs> yeah. There you go.
1: No, I, and I also don't believe in looking back. Like, my big thing is just always look forward. Right. You can learn from the past, but there's just no point because I can't change it. And even if I could, I don't think I would be who I am today. What
2: did you do in Hollywood?
1: Okay. So I was in Toronto, Started had my consulting business, and then um, I was engaged to be married and I got disengaged again, whole other podcast. Fascinating. Lots of people when I came to Hollywood wanted to option that story. But I've always said that I would save it and play myself. And now I'm too old to play myself. So I, of course, knew no one in Hollywood. I had one friend in LA. I moved here. So I did not have to wear pantyhose or socks because I was sick of the Toronto winters. When I left my consulting business, I had some money, so I moved to LA. And before I decided to work in Hollywood, I decided to do all the things that you could do in your early 30s if you had some time. And so I did stand-up comedy. I took classes. <laughs> I went to, um, yeah, I did like all kinds of crazy things. Took did classes you do open everywhere. Mics? I did open mics. That's yeah, so I, funny. Yeah, I I did it all. I still
3: um, think you should pursue that because I find your. You're triple sec. You're very, very, very dry.
1: Yeah, I think that I could have. I just – I there's so many other things. There isn't enough. Like the problem with performing is that it's repetitive and I don't like repetition. That's a curse for you. So, yeah, that's not right. good, which is why I never became like an actress or – I, I think I could have done well in comedy I was doing really well when I was doing it I don't know I, I think I may be just a little too cerebral like I can say fucking shit all day long but I don't really want to talk about my vagina like I just don't have <laughs> you know like as interesting as it might Me be either. it's just not yeah it's yeah, just like no. and that's a lot of the a lot of the female comedians are talking about that and there's nothing wrong with it it's just not it's not and what you I'm,
2: also have so many things you want to do yeah, you I mean, just you have
1: to prioritize them, and that might be
2: like eight on the list, and you have and you only have so much time.
1: So Hollywood, okay. So how do you get into Hollywood when you've never read a script, never went to film school, or never had any interest in anything but going to the movies? So I went to the library and I researched this. So there were no books about how to break into Hollywood. What? There were books, yeah. Back then, there were no books—zero. I went to Samuel French, like I did. You know, I'm very enterprising, and so I went everywhere and I asked people, and no one could help me. And they were, and they just were like, "It's too hard," or "You have to be an assistant." So I did two things. I went through my Cornell directory and found that Jonathan Dolgen was the president of Paramount. So I called him up and said, I went to Cornell, can I come talk to you? And he told me to go home. As did every other person on the Cornell list who I contacted. It was all men. And they all told me that, like, why are you here? You're never going to make it. And you need to start as an assistant, which reminded me of the army story. And I was like, there is no fucking way I'm going to be an assistant. So I was, I think, at the hairdresser and there was a Los Angeles magazine. And in it was an article, the first article I ever read about what the hot thing was in Hollywood. And it said that if you wanted to make movies in Hollywood, you should option true life stories. I didn't know what optioning was. I didn't know what a true life story is, but I went to the library again and I figured that out. So, I started getting a subscription to the LA Times and then every day I would see like a story that I thought cuz I knew so much would be a great story and I would call like I had to get a phone book out and look up the person and then call them up and say, "Hey, I'm a producer." And they're like, what? And they were like, well, are you with Sony? Because they just called and Paramount, everyone just hung up on me. So I looked on a map and I saw that Phoenix, Arizona was an hour flight away and $141 on Southwest return. And so I got on a plane and went to Phoenix and bought like Phoenix Magazine and the New Times. And they had great stories or I thought were great stories. And so I made business cards up that a Nat Barron producer. With an LA address and there was no email. So I called these writers at these magazines and started optioning these stories. But what the article in the Los Angeles magazine did not tell you was what to do with these articles. <laughs> like <laughs> what do you, you do? have all these options? What do you do, right? <laughs> you so I them? didn't know what to do. So I knew this woman and she was having a dinner party. So I went to this dinner party and I like so the guy across from me said that he was a producer and he was represented ICM and i knew that there were like agencies but i didn't know anything about how it worked so i like I asked someone to move and I moved next to him and I said, listen, I just moved here in Phoenix. I don't know. I told him some story and he goes, oh my God, that's fantastic. That's a TV movie. He said, meet me tomorrow morning. I'm gonna call my agents. We're gonna meet at ICM. So I go to ICM and I pitch them this movie. I had never been into an agency. Didn't even know what they did exactly. And on my way out, they say to me, can you come back tomorrow without him? And so the next day I come back to ICM and they say, we'd like to sign you. And not only that, we actually would like you to go meet Steve Tisch and pitch him (laughs) the story that you pitched us yesterday. I said, who is Steve Tisch? And (laughs) Steve Tisch had just won the Oscar for a movie called Forrest Gump. So I went to meet Steve Tisch, who loved the story, And optioned it for me. And again, I honestly, like when I say it, I'm not trying to be funny. I really, I mean, I'm pretty smart, but I did not understand exactly what it meant or any of it. But now I had an agent and Steve Tisch. And then a week later, my new agent, Cindy, called me and she said, There's this company called Longbow Productions. They made a bunch of movies that you've heard of and they want to offer you a housekeeping deal. Would you like that? And I said, Sure. And okay. But I was too embarrassed to ask what a housekeeping deal was. So I now I had a housekeeping deal at this company and I had to drive to the Valley every day, which for anybody not in LA, that's like a good 45 minutes away. And they basically gave me an assistant and an office and every project that I had, I had to give them the first right to make that movie. And so within, I don't know, six months of having a housekeeping project, I had the flu one day. And so I was watching Phil Donahue, which is like, the precursor, I guess, to Oprah. And wow. Phil Donahue had this woman on who had this amazing story. It was, uh, and she wrote a book called Chameleon. So you're watching television and you want to investigate this person and this book that you saw, how do you even get it? So I called a bookstore in Toronto and had them FedEx it to me. And then I called the publisher and she hung up on me. And then she came to LA and I optioned that book and I sold that to ABC. So I sold my first movie within being here for a year to ABC. It was called Chameleon. Unfortunately, that story does not have a happy ending because I believe that Alias, which was the successful TV show starring Jennifer Gardner, yeah. which was on ABC, was actually stolen from Chameleon because it's exactly the same story. However, it that's kind what of how I got to into the Hollywood
0: Tish thing that you were working on um, the Steve,
1: Steve Tisch movie, which I codenamed uh, "Mommies Under the Patio." Um, <laughs> Which is exactly what it sounds like. That that movie did not, yeah, that movie did not sadly get made. It was in development hell. It was in development hell as were pretty much many, many of the other projects that um, I optioned and sold.
2: Do you recognize the serendipity that comes into your life with the hard work? A guy is across the way after you decide to move to Phoenix and you don't, there's something in the universe saying, I'm, you know, here's somebody here that you need to talk to that's going to help you on that journey of all the hard work you're doing. There's a lot of things in your life that these people have or these things have shown up for you exactly when you need them.
1: So, I look at it the opposite way. I went to every friggin' networking, like anytime I've ever wanted to start something, mm. I needed to meet people. So, I would just go until I found the person. It wasn't serendipitous that I was there or that he was there. My friend said, There's going to be some Hollywood people there. That's why, I mean, that's why I went.
2: So, you're making, uh, right. You're so, making I, I make it. I,
1: yeah, I, I think that, you know, if I just waited to meet people, I mean, any. Everything I've ever done is just
0: hard work and push. I find it interesting that you segued completely out of the hotel hospitality (laughs) business, you know, met some guy, went down that path for a few years. And then when that path had the uh, abrupt ending that it had, came to go to Hollywood. It's like the little girl that got off the bus and said, oh, I'm going to be an actress today. And in your case, I'm going to be a producer. And, you know, with no look back, right? You, You never even thought about going back into the hotel business.
1: Well, after the hotel business, I was a consultant, and I didn't just i consulted right. uh, to other yeah. industries, but it's always about like what else can I learn what where Where else are the opportunities what what experiences do I want? Actually, I didn't ever want to work in Hollywood ever, even when I was here, but what do you do in l a like at that time especially yeah like yeah. In, in it's the 90s it's the mid nineties you're in your thirties like what do you what was I gonna do here? There's nothing like I wasn't going to go work in a hotel, the only hotel company that was based here. Plus, I had done, what else could I do in hotels? Like,
0: it's only three businesses yeah. in L.A., really, I mean, yeah, three major businesses, real estate, entertainment, and finance, and that's pretty much it.
3: I just want to put a punctuation mark on this a little bit because what I hear – from you is this idea of like, she who hesitates is lost. You just go for it. You get in there, you do your studying in advance, you pursue a, a source or a lead and you go for the gusto. You really don't hesitate.
1: Well, I, I don't know how people achieve things in any other way than having some sort of plan. Now the plan, I always think it's easier than it's going to be. It always takes twice as long. It always costs more either in time or money. And then I think most people quit. And I think for me, it's like if I want something, I'm not going to stop until I get there because that's the satisfaction that I'm going to get. It's not the financial payoff. It's the, it's the feeling. I think that there's nothing better than that feeling of I did it. I made it. It's not the moment on the stage or anything else. There's always a moment that you, where you like inside you just go, oh, my God, I did it. That's the high. So let's go to Mike's.
3: How did Mike's happen?
1: Okay, so after I left Hollywood, I was at Le Cirque in New York, and Martha Stewart had just gone public that night, and so she was there, and... couple of my girlfriends who I was with said, you should be the Martha Stewart of travel. So I actually started a company called The Travel Fanatic, where I was becoming the Martha Stewart of travel. And this does lead to Mike's. And so I had investors and uh, I was on television. Everyone said, you can't go on national television. Well, yeah, I guess you can. (laughs) I had a deal with um, Condé Nast with Brides Magazine. So I was working with them. I mean, it was amazing. I literally was starting a multimedia company. I created the first decision engine for travel on the internet. I had told everyone in 1999 that porn and travel were going to be the two biggest things online. Everyone laughed at me. Haha, ha, who's laughing now? So you were asking before about why didn't I go back to the hotel industry? I thought that that was going to be the greatest thing ever because it would combine everything that I knew. I started Yelp before Yelp ever thought about Yelp. It was called Rants and Raves. I mean, all the stuff that's going on now. I saw from my background back then, and I was in New York on 9-11, and I was um, in conversations with Good Morning America to be their travel editor. Things were going great. I was going to close another series of funding that week, and 9-11 happened, and we all know what happened, and it was a whole other story there. But one of my investors owned Mike's Hard Lemonade, and Mike's had just launched in the U.S., and he called me from Las Vegas that day and like was crying to me about how he had to p- charter a plane to get out of Vegas because he couldn't leave to go back to Vancouver. And we knew like, right away, or at least I knew, that it was going to take a long time for travel to come back. So Anthony, who owned Mike's, who owned an alcoholic beverage company based in Vancouver, tried for three months to convince me to come help him with this new company. And I kept saying to him, that is the stupidest idea I've ever heard because I'm allergic to alcohol, so how could I help you? Like, And he said, actually, you might be the best person to help me because you will not drive me crazy about what it tastes like because your opinion will not matter.
3: Uh, <laughs> that's that's pretty interesting right there. Yes. And that you listened to that and said, well, yeah, that's per- that makes perfect sense.
1: No, I said, I, we're never going to talk to each other if I can work with you. <laughs> And of course, I was right again, which is one of the problems. So (laughs) I do tend to be right more than I'm wrong, which is like, which drives people crazy. And I always tell people, don't be friends with me because it's horrible.
3: But you're like Holly Hunter in broadcast news where he says, it must be great to know everything and be right all the time. And she says, no,
1: it's actually really awful. Right? Yeah, That's that where is, you're coming from. That is from. Uh, absolutely. It is horrible. Yeah, I mean I I don't I'm not like into new age or any of that or think that I'm clairvoyant, but I do have a really strong sense of what is impending and I'm usually right about lots of things. I even predict football games even though I know nothing about football based on the players' jerseys. I vote on the jersey that they're wearing and I have a 92% accuracy rate if you ever want to vote. So he <laughs> calls you from Vancouver, you argue for For months, for months. And then finally, he says, look, just come help me out as a consultant. I need help building a website and I need help uh, with PR. I said, I don't know anything about those two things, but sure. So I came on board basically to help him. But he had, I think, an ulterior motive, which is he looked at his company and he wasn't happy with what was going on. And so I came in to do that. And somehow within a year, we had to fire everybody in the company. And I became the general manager, the de facto president of his Canadian company. I mean, it just goes on and on. Like I just took on this humongous role. And then I had to fire all of my direct reports and ended up with seven different jobs for like a year because it was very hard to recruit people into this company because it was a disaster.
0: Can you talk a little bit about what the company is, what the business is? So Mike's Hard Lemonade started
1: in Canada in 1996 by this guy, Anthony von Mandel, who went to Australia and saw people drinking a product called Two Dogs, which was an alcoholic lemonade. And he thought, OK, th- I don't like the way this stuff tastes. He brought it back to Canada. He reformulated it and he launched it as Mike's Hard Lemonade. There is no Mike. was actually the most popular boy's name in America. So in 1996, he launched it in Canada. It was vodka based and it became a huge hit. At some point, he decided to bring it to the U.S. In the U.S., vodka-based products are highly taxed, so he changed the formulation and made it malt-based and then brought it to the US. The first 10 million cases were sold with no advertising. It became a huge hit, but no one knew why. And then he actually hired the first ad agency to run ads right before 9/11. Unfortunately, the ads had a lot of people with their limbs chopped off, and so those ads had to be recalled after 9/11 for obvious reasons. Yeah. And so, here was this company that was trying really hard to break in but really had no nobody at the helm to run it. Anthony is a very smart guy, but Actually, I realized later on, as I was working with him, he had never run a business before. And so he was not very good at bringing people in who looked after his interests. Having been a friend of his and also having been in the corporate world, I came in and literally had to clean house. So Mike's is an alcoholic beverage that when I joined the company, I was told that it was supposed to be an alternative to beer for people who don't like the taste of beer. And you found out otherwise, right? And I found out otherwise. So the company was being run by a bunch of men who had left the Coors Brewing Company to go work for this new company out of Denver. And nobody really went out and talked to consumers, which is probably my favorite thing, having started in the hotel business. like I got to be face-to-face with our customers all the time. And I think the most important thing for anybody who's running a business is actually to be out there in the trenches, not to listen to what your reports tell you is going on, but to actually be out there talking to customers. And so I became a stalker myself. And I would go to places like grocery stores and bars and watch what people were drinking and what they were putting in and then would follow them and ask them questions. Sometimes I'd even ask them to take me home, which was really weird. But I wanted to see what was in their fridge. I wanted to see (laughs) like how they were. sexually. Right. No, not that way. No, it was always women that I approached, which maybe they thought was sexual.
3: It was ethnographic research.
1: Yes. What I found out was that it wasn't actually men who needed to be targeted to using TV ads with women with big tits. It was more more that it was actually women drinking it in the suburbs. And I found out that a lot of women called Mike's Mommy's Little Helper. And that uh, and that women were like taking some uh, some mics maybe to soccer games and while they were watching their kids and what I realized especially as a non drinker because remember something I I still say today that the reason that I helped mics become this huge company is because I didn't drink it so it was never about my opinion what I thought it tasted like I still think it smells horrible it was always about like what does it do for consumers. And, and why do people love it? Like I would go on a plane and I I was always working. Like I worked 90 hour weeks. It was crazy. And when I would open my computer, there was a Mike's logo on everything. And so the flight attendant, inevitably, the female flight attendant would come over to me and go, oh, are you with Mike's? I love Mike's. And then I'd go into the bathroom or the galley with the with the flight attendant. Again, nothing sexual and talk about what she loved about it because, you know, it wasn't something you want to talk about It's an alcoholic beverage. So I was careful about, you know, but they would tell me, me their stories. And in time, I realized that there was this kind of cult following for this. And that interestingly, from a marketing standpoint, women didn't need to be marketed to. They just liked what they liked. And for them, and this was the biggest learning, the reason that they liked Mike's was they would go to a lot of, quote, beer drinking occasions, but they didn't want to ha- like have a Budweiser or a Bud Light or whatever it was. And so this now offered them something where they had something in a bottle so they didn't have to put it in not a like a wine glass. Or, or a wine cooler. Mm. which wasn't cool like they just felt and if you think about like the timing of it too like this was the early 2000s women really just it was like I want to feel equal. I'm I'm no less than you. And I and I don't want to be marginalized. And they felt proud holding this thing. The other people, by the way, who loved Mike's Hard Lemonade, and this was actually, this happened in Beverly Hills. I once thought that I had a uh, a burglar in my house. And so I called the 911 and like 10 Beverly Hills policemen showed up. I guess there's not a lot of crime happening. And I had a lot of swag on my dining room table. And these men in their uniforms went crazy and were like, oh my God, do you work for Mike's? And they took all the swag and then literally like now then i knew for the next couple of weeks that every time i saw like a non-uniformed person wearing mics in beverly hills it was actually a policeman but it turned out that policemen and firemen loved the product because they weren't defined by it so what the other thing that i found out about branding is like when i'd go to bars and i'd say to someone here here's a free drink and they'd be like "Uh uh-uh and i'd say like well why won't you drink a mike's hard lemonade and they'd say you know what it won't help me get laid. You know, if I'm holding something macho, that's what helps me get laid. And that was really interesting. So there was a lot I learned actually about, you know, it's just very interesting to me, like Mm -hmm. how brands and how people relate to brands so Beer Wars
3: didn't come out of your deep understanding of the space? That was something separate?
1: So I took a year off after I left Mike's. I went to see a movie called Supersize Me. And oh, yeah, I thought I it was that. brilliant. And I thought, well, I should make a documentary because, of course, I am so experienced at making documentaries. <laughs> didn't do any research, but just thought, I'm going to make a documentary. So I thought, well, I wonder if anybody's made a documentary about the beer industry because I did have deep experience in it. And it was fascinating. And people people don't know anything about it because it's very complicated it's one of the most regulated industries in the world and it's crazy and it's very competitive. So I did by then have Google, thank God, my boyfriend that I share. And so I found out that nobody had ever done an insider's look at the beer industry. So I had the name first because I knew that there was an evil empire called Anheuser-Busch, Beer Wars, Star Wars. I got an invitation to the beer industry convention because I was still on the mailing list for Mike's. And so I called the head of the association and said, I'd love to come film. And he said, are you affiliated with Walmart? And I said, no he says can you put that in writing I said sure why they allowed me to come film with a movie called, with a title called Beer Wars, I will never know. And he is no longer there. Um, but... We're guy. And, and so I went to film. I didn't know what I was doing. I decided at the last minute I hired a crew. I had a friend who had made a documentary for public television, but never anything like this. And so off I went. I had never worked with a crew directly because when I worked in Hollywood, I was like the executive producer. You know, like I never really knew Exactly how things worked. I knew there were people who but did you were that. The executive. <laughs> uh, but I, here I was. And so I started shooting. I didn't know what the movie was because when you make a documentary and you don't know what you're doing, the lesson is you should have some sort of flight path. So I interviewed lots of people, but I couldn't even get a hotel room because all the hotel, the, the entire city was booked. And so once again, I leaned on my Hotel Cornell experience, and so I found that the guy who ran that hotel luckily went to the Cornell Hotel School, and he kicked the president of, I won't even mention, somewhere off. And so I got the, the, the presidential suite so that I could shoot my interviews. Of course, I interviewed this guy later. And he's like, how did you get this room? This is my room. And so I started making a movie. And then I realized very quickly that I couldn't make a movie based on interviews and that I did have something to say. I was really looking for the story. And uh, I started casting for my leads. So I went to the Great American Beer Festival, which is the craft beer festival. And that's how it started. I cast I interviewed a bunch of guys and then I found my lead guy and then I found I wanted to have a female lead, even though it's a movie about the beer industry because there were no women in it. And I was the first woman, by the way, to run a big beer company in America. And that was very controversial because of who I picked. And that's kind of how I got started. It's like
3: a David and Goliath story. Yes. Yes.
1: Total David and Goliath story about how hard it is to be an entrepreneur in America. And I got blacklisted by Anheuser-Busch. And there's a whole story there, too. So let's jump off of that
3: being an entrepreneur in America, right? And do you want to tell us about Stashwall? and?
1: Sure. So of course, I know so much about technology that I decided to start a technology <laughs> company because I don't know how to code. I did have a startup in the travel fanatic, but I hired a bunch of guys. And so it was, a you know, yet another industry that it, different when I first came up with this in 2012 than it was in 99, completely different world. But um, I had a problem that I wanted to fix. So the quick version of it is, that I uh, was at a film festival for, for Beer Wars where the mayor of New York came. It was amazing. And they, I think, offered me a screening, but I never remembered that they offered to screen the movie at their house because the next day I was on a plane and a laptop fell on my head and I sustained a traumatic brain injury and lost my memory. Everything that I'm about, if you haven't noticed yet, comes from my brain. It's just everything is ideas. I mean, that's it. Like, that's my limb that I live off. And that's where all of the curiosity and everything else exists. And so when you have a traumatic brain injury, which is a concussive brain injury, which is what the soldiers were coming back at the time from Iraq and Afghanistan, there really isn't anything that can be done. It's just like, as one of my doctors said, protein and patience. I said, okay, I remember what protein is, but I have no idea what patience is. I don't think I ever had any, even before this. But I did eventually get better, and the way that I got better was I kind of hacked my way into it. I went through everything in my house and all of my stuff to try to reconnect the dendrites in my brain.
0: A scary thing. This is a terrible story. Yes, it's a terrible story with a happy ending. Yes. But what ha- can we just go back to the sure. story So the turbulence upward cap and it opens no turbulence computer fo- no, so something happened and so we're on the ground at
1: JFK and so I was reading a magazine thank God and then what happened next was that I was on the floor and didn't really know what happened but as I was told later the woman two seats in front of me was putting her bag up and she did not zip up the side compartment where her laptop was and apparently it was a giant Dell computer this giant computer hit me like right here and then my head went into the um, seat back in front of me. And then the next thing I remember is like there was a policeman who was talking to me and somehow they took me to L.A. They did not take me off the plane. So we get to L.A. and by where, then this,
0: this happened where in New York? JFK uh
1: huh, in New York, they flew
0: you six uh-huh. hours across the uh-huh. country.
1: Yes. Yes. They flew me six hours. Not a good thing to do. But I had two sets of paramedics waiting at LAX. Yeah. It was pretty crazy. It's a terrible story. Yes. I mean, had, like, now yeah. now we're
0: gonna get to the good ending, but that could have been so much worse than it was. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah, but like, but this is my whole
1: worse. life is about making lemonade, right? Like, literally making lemonade. Like, oh, the travel fanatic. Like my dream is like crushed by like one of the worst thing that's ever happened in America, and now I'm gonna go run an alcoholic beverage company because that makes sense. Same thing. Like it was like you could either I think. It's life, you could either be a constant victim. I mean, that's what I like about our mutual friend Jonathan, right? Or you just you you dust yourself off and you go, okay, everybody feels sorry for themselves. You know, I cry, you cry, you say, why me? But at some point, you have to say I could either wallow in this or otherwise, like I'm not sucking as much out of life as I want to be. What happens next? Oh, after this? Well, I didn't get off uh, like myself. Like I, you were was taken off the plane. Taken off. I was. Yeah, it was one of those where they announced to everyone that, like, people told me this. Like, they announced, like, we have a, a medical emergency, and everyone, please stay seated while we take a passenger off the plane. And then, you know, you've got like the multiple. Set, I don't know why two sets of par- like the paramedics should have been in New York and not in L.A. But anyway,
2: how long did it take for you to get your memory back?
1: It took like a good six months. Like I went, you know, I saw a lot of different doctors and. At the beginning, I mean, it was it was hard. It took a long time, and I had to leave like post its for myself because, you know, like, did I eat? Did I not eat? Wow. Right? So you had to like. Are you fully
0: recovered now?
1: You just am I normal? You yeah. decide.
0: <laughs> well. <laughs> Based upon this experience today, since I have no other other form of measurement, I would have to say yes.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I fully recovered and I think my memory is better than ever. And I think like everything else, I mean, it was it was another thing that happened to me. A lot of things. We don't have enough time. You know, I'm going to write multiple books about all of these experiences. But it was just another experience. And you pieced
2: those ideas together to create Stashwell.
1: I did. So I realized when all was said and done, when I was trying to regain my memory, I was going through my 28 photo albums, my 48 different boxes in the garage from every industry I've been in just to try to piece together stuff and to remember stuff. And when I got better, I was like, why do I need all of this stuff? And I wished that I had had it all in some sort of electronic format. And so I came up with an idea for a company. And so as I crazily do, I found people who I could hire to help me. I am always the person who figures it out and does the strategy and figures out what it's going to be. And then I hire someone to execute it. So you got a designer, and a coder yeah multiple coders and a designer and then started to figure out how to make a business out of it can you frame up what problem it solves It's gone through multiple iterations over time, but the problem it solves is very simple. I want what I want when and where I need it. And so if you right now you said to me, oh, can you show me your report card from fourth grade? I can because I know exactly where it is. It's organized in a way, but it's in one place. Right now we all have phones, but your stuff is scattered across multiple apps. Your computer has thousands and thousands of files. It is almost impossible for you to find what you need in the moment where you need it. So it's your storage locker for everything in your life. Except it's more than your storage locker Mm -hmm. because it's your digital home, basically. So it's a very big idea. So once again, I'm doing something that's completely contrary to what the rest of the world is doing and all of Silicon Valley is doing. Instead of solving a very niche problem, this is a very big problem. And so it's not a locker because I think that stuff that that you put away, what I realized having my brain injury is those boxes in my garage, why do I even have them? Why do I keep it? If I'm not looking at it, what is it doing to my life? I mean, I'm no Marie Kondo, but still like it's not (laughs) giving me anything. There's no joy in it. It's just sitting there. If I haven't opened a box in 10 years, why am I hanging on to it? So could I digitize it? Because we hang on to it just in case. So just in case, I might as well just either digitize it or chuck it. I got rid of every photo, every photo album, every piece of paper I ever owned. I did a social experiment on myself where I moved from a 2,500 square foot house into a 1,200 square foot apartment. I thought I was going to last a year. I've lasted four years. It's like the best thing I've ever done. But there's actually a lot more to Stashwall. There's a corporate Uh element to it. There's how you deal with your providers. It's really about simplifying your life.
2: And on top of Stashwall, you are a very accomplished futurist speaker, as people categorize you, and you're now writing a book.
1: Yes, I'm now a professional speaker. I've been doing it for about four years. I enjoy it because of my love for curiosity. So I get to go into different industries and help them, ask them what their problems are. I speak on um, disruption and innovation, two of the most overused words in the English language, which is why I name my new book Disrupt or Die. And uh, I got a book agent a few months ago, and I'm finalizing my book proposal and Hopefully the book will come out in 2019 so we can do another interview then. If there is out in the world a
3: 10-year-old girl who has the same kinds of dreams and the same kind of kind of qualities to her, what would you tell her given the fact that you've lived through all the amazing twists and turns?
1: Never take no for an answer and just go out and make it happen and don't listen to anybody else. If I had listened to all of the advice that I've gotten in my life, I would never have achieved anything. So just follow your own compass and just figure out a way. There's always, always, always a way.
3: That's just perfect. Thank you so
1: much. You are so
0: inspiring. Next time on Say It Forward, Nigel Sinclair started out as an attorney in Scotland but moved to the U.S. and quickly became one of America's most prolific film producers. He's made such films as George Clooney's The Ides of March, Ron Howard's epic action thriller Rush, Sliding Doors, starring Gwyneth Paltrow, and Terminator 3, The Rise of the Machines, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's produced and won awards for some of the greatest music documentaries ever made. They include George Harrison's Living in the Material World, Bob Dylan's No Direction Home, Foo Fighters, Back and Forth, Amazing Journey, The Story of the Who, Billy Joel's Last Play at Shea, and The Beatles' Eight Days a Week. This prolific producer is currently working on a few new music projects. One of them includes Luciano Pavarotti, an epic life story documentary. So join us when we rewind to the beginning with Nigel Sinclair on the next Say It Forward.
3: Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.